Hello, and welcome to episode 47 of the Ohio Huntsman podcast. And I really think you're going to like this episode. So Jacob and I talked to the team from Miami Valley Falconry. They are a, a falconry school that is located in southwest Ohio. And we learned a ton in this conversation. We have zero falconry experience. And these folks have years and years and years of experience in falconry with their combined experience. So it was a super interesting conversation. Like I said, we learned a ton. We talked about how to get into falconry, history on falconry, um, how a hunt with falcons actually plays out. So you just have to listen to it because, like I said, we learned a ton Super excited about this episode. It went really well. And uh, they also, spoiler alert, offer or are going to offer this fall the opportunity for people to come down and go on a pheasant hunt with them with their birds. So you don't have to go through all of the uh, the years and years of training and experience and, and all the requirements to get into falconry. You can just, they've done all the hard work for you. You just show up, have a good time, watch the birds work, and that sounds like a super awesome experience. So there will be links to all of their information, their website, Facebook, and Instagram account in the show notes so you can find them and check them out. But uh, I guess most importantly, just listen to the episode. And like I said, we enjoyed this conversation immensely. Before we get into that, I want to talk about our sponsor, Monster Whitetail Grub. So as you've heard us talk, they are a Ohio-based deer feed company, and they try to source all of their product, even down to the packaging, from Ohio. So by supporting them, you're supporting Ohio Huntsmen, as well as the Ohio economy. So they have a high-protein feed with mineral mixed in, they have straight mineral, and then they also have flavored corn. So as you're right now trying to get trail cam pictures of bucks and velvet good time to have mineral out and then as you're building out your strategy maybe your hunting strategy for the fall maybe you're going to work some kind of feed in there or maybe you just want to supplement feed to the deer in your area just to help them get by whatever you want they've got something for you so again check out the show notes for a link to them and see if they have something that you're interested in and now Let's get into the call with Miami Valley Falconry. Welcome to the Ohio Huntsman Podcast, where three brothers, Jason, Jacob, and Jeff, discuss all things hunting in Ohio. Our goal is to be your source for accurate and reliable hunting news and conservation issues in the great state of Ohio, as well as some fun and interesting conversations along the way. This is the Ohio Huntsman Podcast. Are you listening? All right, so on today's episode, we've got the Miami Valley Falconry. Are you guys a club or an organization? How do you guys describe yourself? We actually, we are a school. We do, a, we call ourselves a school. And what we're doing, okay. we're, we're giving educational programs out to the public. We do, uh, you know, churches, schools, any any event. Corporate team building. You know, okay. You know, like that. and. We do the Renaissance Fair. We do Celtic fairs. You know, you'll you'll we did a Vi- we do the Viking Fest. You know, you'll see us almost anywhere. Awesome. Schools. We go out and do a lot of conservation and ed- and education about raptors. 
Okay. So we've we've got a couple voices there. Why don't we? Why don't you guys go around and kind of introduce yourselves and give a little background, maybe on on either how you got into falconry or how you got involved with Miami Valley Falconry. Okay, so my name is Adam McGuire. I'm one of the uh, team members here. I've been a falconer for almost six years now. I actually learned from Doug, who's here with us today. Um, I got into falconry because a falconer actually came to my elementary school when I was in fourth grade, and I always knew I wanted to do it. And then when I got out of the Army Reserves, first thing I did was got a hold of the uh, the falconers here in Ohio. Someone linked me up with Doug, and that's that's kind of it. Okay. My name is Becky Geiger. And Doug and I are married, and we've been practicing falconry. Uh, me with Doug for the last 22 years. I've been in and out of falconry at various times, and recently we started Miami Valley Falconry and dove right back in head first and started doing conservation and education and just been having a blast with it. And my name's Doug Geiger. I've been a falconer for near 50 years. And I've been flying birds of prey, every kind of bird of prey that's native to Ohio in the falconry circle, that is no owls. I fly, you know, red tails, cowsocks, cougarsocks, sharpies, uh, and think peregrines and the hybrid falcons, and you know, and that's the stuff we've been flying and dealing with. And this all lends to the show because this, this is part of what we have to, you got to know all this stuff to accomplish being able to, you know, educate the public. Okay, so... We've got we've covered introductions, so I, I kind of want to and we started a little bit about, you know, what Miami Valley Falconry is about. But I, I want to kind of talk about what it is you guys do, sort of what's your what's your mission in life with Miami Valley Falconry? You said you're a school and, and education and conservation. Can you can you talk about that a little bit and, and sort of what's your what's your grand mission with all of this? I think our our mission foremost is going out and educating young people. We find that there's about two generations now of young people that have primarily lived indoors and it's shocking to hear how many kids have never even touched a tree, never been taken fishing, can't identify the local dicky birds that live in their backyard, let alone the raptors. And we know that as us older people die off, these are the people that are going to be left to take care of the environment and all the critters that live in it. So that's really our, our thrust. And you're kind of doing that through the lens of, of falconry and that's sort of your way to educate the, the youth and as a way to get them outdoors and involved with the wildlife and, and the wild species and, and things like that. Oh, definitely. It is. And I think Doug, makes a good point to that fact and that when we discuss falconry it's not just about the birds themselves but when you talk about falconry now we have to branch out and talk about all the other species that these birds catch all the things we go hunting for and how you look for those other species and where they live and how they interact in the environment yeah, when I first started falconry, learning under Doug, that was actually one of the things he made very clear to me. He said, I'm not just going to teach you about these birds. I'm gonna, when we walk out somewhere, I point out a tree, you better be able to tell them what kind it is. We see a bird that flashes that's not a bird of prey. I want you to at least be able to get closer, be able to identify that. And ever since then, you know, it's been a great, uh, falconry has become a really good um, 
uh, avenue on learning more than what is just birds prey, but like Becky just said, everything there is to it. And, and that's what falconry does for you. It introduces you to the wild at a closer relationship than it ever did when, when I was a young man and I gun hunted a lot. And I got to the point where I thought, you know, I would really enjoy this more if I could get a closer relationship with all the animals I'm chasing around or I'm observing. And with hawks, it was like I really didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to do shoot or shoot anything or do anything like that. But I could definitely be out there in the wild and spend as much time as I wanted associating with the wild and all the critters. And really, what I what I accomplished, I, I could hunt and hunt and hunt, but really, I never took anything away from it because it all went straight back to the birds I was hunting with. Okay, so can you give us a little? And I'm sure you can because of of what you've told us already, but can you give us um, just a, a little history on falconry itself? So like like we talked before the call, Jacob and I have no experience with falconry whatsoever other than seeing some hawks. And I, I told Adam, I've got a, there's a bald eagle nest down the road from my, my house. And so other than seeing them in the wild, we've got zero experience with using them and and interacting with them other than watching them. So can you give us a little history on, on the sport of falconry itself? Well, falconry actually predates the written word. So it goes back several thousand years. Um, it really reached its high during the Renaissance period, which was the 1500s, 1600s, Henry VIII, Queen Elizabeth, were in, in rule then, and it really was not about catching game. There, there certainly were more effective ways to catch game, but really what it was about was it gave all the lords and nobles and kings a, a, a social avenue to have these grand hunting parties where all the other rich people would participate and bring their hawks and falcons. And it was also a diversion. You know, if you go back to Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan, Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan both carried thousands of hawks and falcons with them on invasions. And they carried so many that they actually had hundreds of attendants that just strictly took care of the birds. So it, it spans history several thousand years, starting How way back to the Mongolians. Sorry to interrupt, but you said falconry predates the written word. Is that is it? Are there like cave paintings, or how do, how does that history come into play? I'm just curious. There, there is actually in 2008 there was a falconry summit uh, in Dubai, and they brought in a bunch of uh, people that were kind of the authorities on falconry from every country, or so to speak, and they they talked about that the right now the the earliest um idea in which somebody used a hawk for hunting was actually a falcon it was in what's now modern day iran um i can't remember that the 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 leader's name because i I can't pronounce it but it was over ten thousand years ago wow so it falconry is it's a super it's extremely rich history and it's more tied into every day than what a lot more people uh would actually could imagine okay so so it's got a, a long, long history, and it's continued to today. Oh, yeah. 
And so I guess let's let's kind of jump to present day and can we talk a little bit about the the state of falconry in present day? And then I want to get into actually like using the falcons and and I've got tons of questions there. So well today where we're at in the United States, we're gonna, we're going to talk just about what's going on in the United States. We're in a really, really, in my opinion, a unique position by the fact that some of the birds that we're using now occur only in North and South America, and in fact, never occurred in Europe. So when the Europeans came to the United States some time ago, and they looked around and they were always looking for birds, you know, in fact, they, they think that Leif Erikson, when he, when he stumbled into North America some time ago, was on a quest for deer falcons which is one of the most desired falcons in history. Okay. So, so along those lines, when, when we came to North America, there was a bird called a red-tailed hawk, which I'm sure anybody that's got any inclination of what's going out, on outside the window has heard of. And these things turned out to be one of the premier birds of prey in the world for falconry. Now, there's a lot of birds that have ability to hunt but there's not a lot of them that have the ability to hunt with man. There, there's a lot of birds that you think, wow, that'd be great to hunt with, but these things can't deal with people. Red tails deal with people super good, and there's, there's a Harrisog found in southwestern United States and in South America that even deals with people better. In fact, the Harrisog deals with people better than any bird of prey in the history of, of the world. These things are beyond a doubt the most popular bird in falconry today, they're found all over the world because they breed in captivity. These things are now found over in Europe. They're found in China, Japan, South America, or uh, Africa, Spain. Everybody's got a Harris hawk, and if they don't, they want one. The, the only thing that may be sought after more than a Harris hawk is a red tail, but the guys in Europe don't have enough of them to really get a good breeding project going, so they... So not everybody that wants one can get one. Doug, when you, when you say deals with people, uh, can you explain that? What does that mean when you say the, the red tails and the Harris hawks deal with people well? That is that the, particularly the Harris hawk, it's easy to explain by the fact that these things hunt in groups. They're the only bird of prey that hunts in groups. So when it comes time for them to accept somebody else as a hunting partner, they'll accept people as a hunting partner. Oh, They're, okay. So, you know, we're like a, there's a bird called a red shoulder, and this thing's got all the athletic abilities to catch almost anything going, but they're just such nervous wrecks that they can't deal with people. So nobody uses okay. They're completely useless for falconry, whereas this Harris Hawk, it's like if you ever sat down and really thought, let's create a bird for falconry, you'd come up with a Harris Hawk because they are unbelievably social. Okay. So- so how do you go about acquiring these birds, I guess? Like, obviously, I'm a, I guess I shouldn't say obviously. I have no idea. But I'm assuming you're not just capturing <laughs> birds out of the wild. Like, actually, actually, that is how we do get a lot of our birds. Is That is, falconry, like we said, is, a, is an ancient sport. And that is part of the tradition is taking a bird out of the wild. For falconry. Yeah, for falconry. Like and all, all our show birds. Yeah, so... So for falconry, a lot of our birds, they do come out of the wild, but for like our bird, for Miami Valley falconry, our shows, um, those birds are all captive bred or they come from rehab centers. Um, for falconry, 
just to give you an idea, when I first started as an apprentice, you get a, the state of Ohio gives you a choice of two birds. You can go out and catch your own kestrel, or you can go out and catch your own red-tailed hawk. And when you catch these birds, they are fully grown, and you catch them at about September. They're still a juvenile bird, and they're just now getting out of the nest. The parents are just getting to the point where they're chasing them out or they're coming down on their first passage on migration. And you're going to go out and catch this bird. And then once you've captured the bird, you begin – basically, it's the manning process. Um, and something that I do want to make very clear on the manning process, because there was a, there was an article recently written that uh, painted falconry in a very, very bad way, and it could not be more ignorant and more wrong. So what the manning process is, when I get this red-tailed hawk, I take it home, and uh, we put what's called jesses and anklets on it. And that is so that we can hold the bird down to our glove and so that the bird does not get injured and nor do you. And then what, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit in the chair and I'm going to keep that bird on my glove um, for as long as I can. Typically, like I, I always say, you know, in your first week, you want to put 40 hours in. You know, that's that's your goal. Um, when I my last red tail that I had, I, I think I had it on the glove for the first night for seven and a half hours. And all I did was just watch movies and sit there with it. And in that seven and a half hours, all that bird did was, you know, it just stared at me because it couldn't figure out why in the hell do I have it? Why, why am I holding it there? Right. And in that process of me holding it, you know, something that you always do is you try to get the bird to eat. So you're always presenting it with food. Because um, the reason I'm pointing this out, in that article that was written recently, they said that falconers starve their birds into submission. And that could not be further from the truth. You actually want to get your bird to eat from you as soon as possible so that your bird sees you as a food source. Um, it, 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 that way it gets more comfortable around you. Because if you can get a bird to eat around you, it, it becomes more comfortable. It becomes more trusting. Um, because, yeah, the, the starving is submission. That, just, I, that is such an ignorant statement. And it paints the falconry community in such a bad light. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, well, I would point out too that in the in the training techniques used with falconry, um, it's always positive reinforcement 100%. There's no negative reinforcement. You, you just can't train birds that way. You can't train a bird by starving. It no. can't be done. The bird must be trained. There's Interesting. There's techniques, and, and yeah, your bird might lose weight. We 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 weigh our birds daily. And if your bird loses more than 10% of its body weight from the day you got it, you have made a mistake. You have stuck, you've got to start your training technique over again, get that bird fat. And that, and that includes, if, you always want to feed it on your glove at first. That's, that's the primary objective. But if the bird is too high strung, just doesn't like what's going on, something's bothering it, you're going to have to feed it. You're just going to have to leave it with food so it'll eat. So you, because you have to keep its body weight up. Well, and these birds, when they when they get trained up and they are actively hunting, I like to make the comparison between them and Olympic athletes because that's really the condition they're kept in. Okay, so two questions out of out of that, and you can answer them in either order that you would like. How do you catch the hawks? Like, what's the process of catching the hawk? And can anybody just go out and catch a hawk, or do you need a permit from the state or because i i know there's protections and things on on the birds of prey and i, I think they're federal protections oh yeah so 
So how do you catch a hawk and how do you get authorization or permission to be in possession of a hawk? I don't know if we can tell you how exactly detailed we catch hawks because I don't know. You don't necessarily want every Joe Schmo going out and catching a hawk because that's a, that is very illegal. So that's something we should probably keep uh, with us. Um, it is a fun process. It usually takes all day. And I will say this. You usually do not catch a hawk on your first day out. You, you can sometimes go out seven, you know, every day of the week and you may not even catch a hawk. It, it is a, months. yeah, it is an arduous process. Um, as well as the paperwork. The paperwork yeah. is an arduous process as well. And actually even becoming an apprentice um, at this time has become a bit more arduous because you are required to have a master falconer sponsor you in your apprenticeship. And I think that in order to keep people out that really don't want to hunt or that don't want to actively fly their birds and, and give the bird what it deserves, um, those people that want to be an apprentice are made to shadow a falconer for almost a year, sometimes two, before a master falconer will take them on as an apprentice. So as a quick follow-up to that, I guess, how many master falconers are there in the state of Ohio? I really don't know the answer to that question. Um, I can tell you that the current figures nationwide are somewhere between three and 4,000 falconers in the United States. Um, I don't know how that splits out. You're an apprentice for two years, and then you become what's called a general falconer for three years. And then after you serve that three years, you're eligible to become a master falconer. So it's quite a long process. So it, it's six years <clears throat> as a rule before you can look forward to be called becoming a master. And then is there like a, for lack of a better term, a test or some way to prove that you've established mastery of it? Or how does that process work? The, the process is the first thing you do is you take a test. And it's how many words? It's 110 questions. 110 questions. And each state's test is different. Um, and that, that makes it difficult sometimes because when, when you go to study it, um, you, you kind of, you don't know what study guide to really use. Some states like California, which has the most falconers in it, they actually have a study guide specifically for their test. Um, New York has a study guide and Wyoming has a study guide. And in those states, falconry is, it's very popular. So when me, when I was taking my test, those are the study guides that I used, but I also read, but, um, for the Ohio test, the actually the best source I actually got was from Doug and just listening to him talk. Doug, like Doug's been doing this for 50 years, so he's. So what, what happens? It's just so you get the flow of this properly. First thing you do is you take your test. After you take your test, now you've got a sponsor already standing by. He said he's willing to help you. So then you then the next thing after you take your test, you pass your test. Then you have to get your facilities examined by the game warden. Game warden comes to your house and looks at the building you're going to keep your bird in. Then he looks at all your equipment. He looks at your perches, your hoods, your jesses, your leashes, swivels, uh, gloves, bags, everything you've got to accomplish keeping this bird in good health. So after that's done, then the state sends you a letter and it says you are eligible to go out and trap a bird. Now you just can't grab your letter 
jump in the car and go trap a bird, you've got to go get your master falconer and he's got to find time to go with you. See, that's where the master falconer, he's really, he's putting something into this too. He's putting a lot of time and effort into this whole project with you and for you. You know, so he's going to make sure that you're going to do exactly what he what he sees as the proper way to accomplish this. That is, he's going to make sure you take care of that bird. That's going to be his biggest job is to make sure that that bird stays healthy while it's under the jurisdiction of him and his apprentice. So that's kind of where, so you get a pretty tight bond between the falconer and apprentice because, you know, they've got to be truthful with each other. What are you doing? You know, uh, let me see your bird. I want to make sure everything's good. And that's kind of the way it goes. So the, the, uh, uh, the master falconer takes on responsibility for the actions of his apprentice. So they just don't, they just don't hand it out to anybody coming down the street. You know, you, you take your time and you tell this guy, look, you're going to follow me around for at least a year before I even bother, before you even bother to take the test. So that, that's kind of the way it's working in Ohio. Every, every master falconer pretty much tell you the same thing. You're not going to get a master to sponsor you until you spend a year following him around in the woods hunting your birds. Yep. So, so given all of the, I guess what I'll say, barriers to entry to, to get into falconry, how is, uh, I guess, how is falconry trending? Is it, are, are more people getting into it or is it less and less? Uh, how is the, I guess, the health of falconry at the current moment? It's in a big upswing right now. That's it's almost a fad at this time, and more women than ever are getting in the sport. Twenty years ago, I think in Ohio there was one other woman beside myself, and I think um, I I think about the club in Indiana, and I can think of probably five or six young ladies that are in that club. So it's very popular right now. I do want to go back and clear up. I think I incorrectly stated the general class was three years, and actually that's five. So if you if you go back and do that math, that's two years as an apprentice, five as a general before you're eligible for master. So okay. a little bit more lengthy than what we originally stated. It's basically a master's degree to become a master falconer. It's eight years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, wow. that's. That's good to hear that, because uh, I would have guessed that, you know, given some of those restrictions and, and it sounds like rightfully so, you need to have those restrictions in order to make sure that, that people are doing things correctly and treating the birds correctly. And, and But I would have guessed that given the time commitment required to get into it, that, you know, things would be on a downward trend. So I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that things are actually in an upward trend. So that's that's good. Yeah, it, it's um. There's a lot of people that like show interest to us, um, like at the Renaissance Festival when we were doing old world falconry conservation talks. Um, they come up and say, "Hey, you know, I would love to be a falconer and things like that." And the one thing that you know Doug made very clear to me when I first started following him around was, "This isn't a hobby. This is a lifestyle, and it, it is a huge time commitment thing." Okay. Do the do the Falcons, I guess, again, coming from a point of being completely naive, um, do, like, does, we'll say, Doug, does your, well, I guess, first question, as a Master Falconer, are you allowed to have more than one bird of prey, or is it kind of a one-to-one ratio, or how does that work? 
And then follow up to that is, are the birds partial to their owner, so to speak, or could any of the three of you kind of take out each other's birds? Well, it depends on how good a, a falconer you are. If you're allowed to, uh, if, if you really know how to handle a bird, they trust everybody. And that's kind of a unique situation. When you see a guy handling a bird, if somebody else comes up and, and gets close to the bird, the bird may react by rearing its head back a little bit. And you immediately know that this falconer's not handling his bird just exactly as good as he could. A lot of birds won't fly to other people because they, they distrust their falconer a tiniest bit. And, and when you see that, when another bird won't fly to somebody, you just go, that guy could do a better job of training his bird. So that having said that, uh, a master falconer is allowed six birds, three from the wild and three captive bred. You, the point is they'll only let you take three birds out of the wild. Handling six birds is, I've done it, but it's tough. You really got to spend a lot of time. I can only do it because I'm retired. You know, I, I, otherwise I wouldn't have the time. And, and, I, and I wanted to kind of describe a classic hunt for you guys so you kind of got a better idea of what we're, we're doing. When we take, let's just grab a bird, let's say we're flying a red tail, which is what most guys fly. That's the most popular bird in North America to fly. You got your red tail, you got him trained and you're hunting with him. He knows what you're up to and you know what he's up to and you two are made a team and you're going, you're going to get your beagle dog out and you're going to go take a walk in the woods. And what you do is you take your bird and you put new jess, you put a different kind of jesses on it, which is little strings that attach to her leg, leather thongs, you know, and you turn the bird loose. This bird's flying completely free. And you've had him hunting before and he knows what you're going to do. And he knows that he wants to stay close to you. So you start walking through the field or you start to walk toward a woodlot or down a little hedgerow. And her bird will follow you tree to tree and keep an eye on anything you're doing. Now, if any time you jump something up, squirrel, rabbit, you'll yell ho. That's our standard scream. We'll just all scream ho. And that bird knows what that means. That means we spotted quarry. And this thing's swiveling its head. And 99 and 9 tenths of the time, the bird will see the quarry before you ever get a chance to yell. And at that point, this bird's up in a tree. It might be 60 feet up. Is that the higher the better because it can build up more speed. So now the bird sees the rabbit and it slams into this thing doing Mach 1. They're, they're going, I guess, 45 miles an hour. And they'll hit this rabbit and at no time will they put on the brakes. They're slamming into this rabbit as hard as they can. And what they want to do is they want to knock it silly. They really want to blast it. And they're doing that so they can knock the snot out of it so that this rabbit or squirrel basically gets hit so hard it's incapacitated. Now these birds kill by constriction. Red tails and harris hawks and goshawks kill by constriction. That is they grab their quarry with their feet and their, the strength in their feet exceeds that of a strong man. So they literally crush the life out of whatever they got. Be it rabbit or squirrel or mouse or snake or frog or whatever it is they got. But you, you got to understand these things, once they get good at it, that is, they learn how to dispatch their quarry, they can get, you can't get there in time to save this critter because they've got it dead sometimes within 30 seconds, sometimes within 10 seconds, they've killed it. At that point, you know, you, you're, you're a falconer, now you've caught something. Your bird's got something. And that's not hard to accomplish. What's hard to accomplish is 
is to get that bird to catch, let's just say, a rabbit. You got your rabbit, the bird's killed it, it's starting to eat it. Now, what what is going to make this bird want to give you that, give up that rabbit, come to you, and then let you put the rabbit in the bag and go out and catch another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, and then do the very same thing the very next day. When you can accomplish that, then you're a falconer because now you've got this bird trusting you so much that it's just it, that you're using the fact that they love to hunt. They absolutely, they, they'd almost rather hunt than eat. And they get to the point where they're just killing rabbits because it's an absolute blast to them. And they're just more than willing to let you give them their share at the end of the day. Hey, I want to pause this real quick and ask you a favor. If you're enjoying this conversation and, and you think it's been worth your time so far, pause the episode take a quick screenshot and share it to either Facebook or Instagram and tag us in it just as a way to say, yep, I like the content, keep up the good work. I would really appreciate it because that's also going to help other people find out about the episode and, and all the past episodes that we've done. So if you would, if you're enjoying this, take a quick screenshot, share it to social. I would greatly, greatly appreciate that. Now, back to the conversation. So they actually... When when things are going good and, and it's a well-trained bird, they're actually bringing the rabbit or squirrel to you, or are you going and collecting it? We That's actually one of the most common asked questions. Everybody wants to know, do they bring it to you? But they do not, and actually that's something that is called carrying, which is heavily discouraged. You never want your bird to carry anything. So when we're out hunting, as Doug said, we're more like the dog, you know, we're beating the brush and we're, we're jumping up the game and then they catch whatever it is we jump up and then we make in is what we call it. And what that is, is that's getting that bird to trust you and accept you enough to get down on the ground with your face and hands mere inches from that bird's beak and talons and allow you to reach in there and deal with that quarry it's caught and cut little pieces off of that quarry and tidbit that bird those little pieces and and get it to accept you and trust you and allow you to do all that without harm and with it still being very happy in the end and willing to go catch another another quarry okay so i guess in follow up to that what does that process look like like i'm imagining that's got to be pretty intimidating the first time you go in there to take something from your bird so i guess how does that training what? work everybody's sitting here nodding their head <laughs> yeah <laughs> what's what's really intimidating is you know there's a reason that the state of ohio and most most other states allow your first bird to be a red tail and that is because they are big rough tough customers and you know you can make a lot of mistakes and that bird's more than likely going to be able to survive it and still thrive so and they know you're going to make mistakes that's part of the process um, but the minute you first trap that bird and you pull that thing out of the trap or off the trap and you see those big scary feet with those massive talons it is something to remember i i never forget that moment and you never forget the moment you first stand that bird on your glove and you're looking down at those feet thinking oh my god i hope it doesn't foot me yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's the term we use getting footed 
and everybody, and, it, and it's so much fun. When, when, when I remember when Adam got his bird, his first <laughs> bird, it was particularly the females are a third larger than the males, okay? So you always want a female so she can really beat them rabbits' butts good, you know, or be able to kill a squirrel the, the second she grabs it because her feet are so big and strong she can just crush them. So he had a big female on the trap. And, and we were, there was a couple of, there was another master falcon there, and he started running over and he wanted to get that bird off the trap. And I stopped him. I said, don't do that. That's not your bird. I told Adam, I said, get the bird. That's your bird. And he was looking at me like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this thing's going to eat me alive. And then, you know, just, you, you can't help yourself. I just said, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> this may hurt. Truthfully, I, I kind of looked like a drunken prom date walking out there to get that bird. I was so excited. I just, I, was, I wanted to get there. And the one thing that I did that in my excitement, you know, I got out there to the trap to get the bird. I didn't take a glove with me. And that is a, that is a huge mistake. That's like the stupidest thing you could do. And all, all, I hear is, all I hear is Doug say, hey, dumbass, you might need this. And he throws a glove at me. That, that it definitely, if I did not have that glove, I'd probably have some puncture wounds in my hand and some nerve damage. But just to put that in perspective so that you can sort of wrap your head around what these birds can do, I think the red tail, its talon uh, uh, and foot strength is estimated at 200 to 300 pounds per square inch. So they can wow. really exert some pressure. And when they lock down, their tendons work in a way that they, they pulse and they keep contracting. So it's not like you're just going to get a little poke and it's going to turn you loose. It's like you're going to get the full-on deal. And it's going to keep sinking them. Yeah, yeah, it hurts. And, and you, <laughs> see, that the thing you, that you should understand, too, is that falconry is more than just a hunting sport. And, and part of that is the trapping. Trapping, trapping to me, trapping hawks, and to every falconer I've ever met, they, they'll tell you that that's every bit as exciting as going hunting, is trapping those birds, because it's an absolute blast. You know, to okay. get everybody together, and you got that bird. And I've I seen a guy that had a... Uh, he had a red tail on his lap, and he was a he trapped many many birds, and he was all excited. And you turn them on their back because it disorients them, so that that calms them down. So he's looking at this thing. He's got it on his back, laying on his, and it, he's sitting in the car, and he's got it laying on his knees, and he's looking at the bird, and he accidentally bumps the the bird's feet into his midriff, and this bird sinks eight talons into his roll of fat around his stomach, and oh. is screaming like he's on fire, right? And we're all howling. We think this is the funniest thing we've ever seen. <laughs> the, the reason you're laughing is 99% of it is you're so damn glad it didn't happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> so when you guys are, um, you keep referring to when you're hunting with your birds, do you guys, when you hunt with your birds, is anyone carrying weapons or your bird is your only weapon? A bird's your only weapon. You've got a knife in your pocket. Yeah, okay. the, only, the only thing you're really carrying in your hand is a, is a stick, walking yeah. stick. You got a stick to beat the brush, and you got if you're lucky, you're smart enough. You got a dog. Yeah. Dog, <laughs> those birds understand if those dogs are chasing them rabbits, and when them beagles start howling, them birds key on them like they're they're like they're hit with electric prod. They're immediately up and after that dog. They want to get as close to that dog as they can so they can see what see the rabbit that they know it's chasing. So in falconry, are you guys, do you guys follow the same hunting laws and, and 
restrictions as everybody else, or are there separate like bag limits, season dates, etc.? Our bag limits are the same, but our our season runs a little differently. It's a it's a little longer on each end, and and you know, you know that guys think like, wow, why do they get an extra extra two or three weeks? Well, here here's the long and the short of it. They've studied what we're doing, you know, for the last almost 50 years. They've been looking at, you know, they make us send in every year. We send in how many hunting trips we went on, how many rabbits we caught. And when we catch a hawk, we have to let the state of Ohio know we caught that hawk within five days of when we caught it. Wow. So nothing gets by, you know, we're, we're not trying to get by nothing, but it all gets reported. So they can simply, you know, after 45 years of this, they look at their paperwork and they go, these idiots aren't catching enough um, enough rabbits to make any difference. They're not taking enough birds of prey out of the wild to make any difference. And they, they, they made an impact statement. It was after 40 years of falconry, licensed falconry in the United States. They said the impact of falconers on birds of prey is zero. And they said the impact of falconers on wildlife is zero. So we basically... And, and that's that's to me is the beauty of the sport is that we all kind of we all kind of fit into nature. We're really not trying. We're not upsetting the balance. We're just fitting in. Sure. And where do you I guess when when it comes to hunting, are you guys is it private property? Is it public land? I mean, how do you I guess the cr- interface of if there's guys out hunting rabbits traditionally with firearms and dogs, and then you guys want to hunt with hawks, how does that all mix? I, we hunt both. It can be private or public. Um, and really, a lot of the areas you hunt probably would surprise you. It's a lot of small industrial-type lots in the inner city. The reason we do inner city is, first of all, nobody's got chickens running around in the yard. Second of all... There's no no gun hunters, and we we strictly we stay away from gun hunters. Like we know what's going to happen. I had a guy shoot one of my Harris hawks two years ago. Oh wow! That was a uh, you know I had six years of training into that bird. I paid a thousand dollars for the bird, and I spent six years training it. And this guy blew it up. So I was you know you really got to be careful. Yeah. yeah so so you've talked about um, rabbits and squirrels so it sounds like you can hunt multiple species with a like a a red tail for example it's not just a it's not just for hunting rabbits you can hunt multiple game species with a a single hawk oh absolutely yeah yeah red tails are uh they're big tough birds and and their forte is their ability to just be the roughest character in the brush i mean they slam in i've i've seen a red tail hit a rabbit so hard that it blew the guts of the rabbit out the other side of the rabbit. I mean, wow. These, these, these things are tough beyond your wildest hallucination. So, yeah, you can hunt squirrels. Mm-hmm. And if, and, but a red tail's not nearly as fast as a goshawker or is agile. So, you know, you're kind of limited. You're, you're really not going to become proficient at catching ducks with a red tail. You may catch the occasional duck with a red tail. And that's just like, wow, that's really cool. I caught a duck. Well, that's as far as it's going to go. And every now and then, some guy's red tail will slam into a wild turkey and kill it. And those wild turkeys are big, you know, muscular animal, but they pretty much, once they get grabbed by the head, they pretty much fall over. But it, it takes an, uh, a red tail, you know, you're looking at an animal that's three or four times your size, and, and, and 
most birds won't attack them. But every now and then you get one. So the whole point is, if you're going to fly a red tail, you're going to hunt rabbits and squirrels. You may get a duck. You may get a turkey. They're certainly not going to get a pheasant because there's none in Ohio. I haven't seen a quail in 40 years in Ohio. So you're not going to hunt those. Yeah. It's pretty much rabbits and squirrels. So, so do you ever, I mean, we're talking about multiple species here. Do you ever, does the bird ever catch a non-target species? It happens. And, and there is laws set up for that. And it, and it goes as follows. If your bird catches something that you're not allowed to be killing, you can let your bird eat it and let it, or you can pick your bird up and get it off of that and walk away. But you cannot take that thing home with you. Yeah, can't can't remove it from the field. It has to, it's called the let lay rule. The let it lay law. You just let it lay. I had a female Harrisaw kill a, a, an adult female turkey and it broke my heart, but I had to let it lay. I just let it lay in the woods. And I'm sure the coyotes ate it. You know, but that's that's the way it is. So, are there things that I guess what I'm thinking about is other things. I mean, like rabbits and squirrels are are things that people see as as food species. But I know hawks eat uh, you know snakes and frogs and things like that. Are there? I guess maybe the areas that you're hunting prevent those type of things, or or maybe because the the hunting of the rabbits and squirrels is more exciting than say a a snake or a frog, they, they leave those alone, or, or how does that work? It, it works like this. It's more exciting for us to catch rabbits and squirrels. Yeah. So we avoid all the areas that have snakes, frogs, and things, yeah. and mice. Okay. Our hawks are mouse, mice catching pools. 89% of the diet of a wild red tail is mice, and, and Harris hawks catch them even better than, than red tails do. It's the bane of falconers is a mouse, and we're always catching them. Now okay. you got to steal something from a, you got to rob your bird of a mouse that it really wants to eat. And every <laughs> time you do that, this bird is going, I don't trust you as much as I did a minute ago. Yeah. So, yeah, then you really try to, I avoid fields that have mice in them like the plague. You know, the only thing I avoid more is fields that have shotgunners in it. Or kitty cats. <laughs> kitty cats. cats. Ooh, they're bad news too, because you do come across wild cats, feral cats. And in particular, Harris hawks, they'll catch them. And if your bird gets bit by a feral cat, it's it's not good. It can, if the cat happens to have cat scratch disease, your bird's not going to live to see the morning. They can rapidly develop an infection. They'll kill them pretty quick. Oh, wow. Yeah, the cats are an invasive species, and they really don't belong in North American continent. So. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of... That's the source point yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> there's a little bit of hate for cats here because there's nothing more frustrating. You're driving past a field, and you're like, man, that looks like a great field. Let's go over there. Let's do it. You know, there's snow on the ground. It's 25 degrees. Perfect day. You look down. You see cat tracks. You just get in your car and leave. They've killed all the rabbits. There's not going to be anything there. Okay. So ha- have you ever had a hawk grab somebody's house pet or something? Uh, <laughs> next question okay so I'll, I'll tell a story on that and and we don't have proof on this and maybe you guys can comment on this but um my brother-in-law actually they have a uh a miniature chihuahua this thing is no bigger than a chipotle burrito and uh they they let it out with a, they've got a couple other big dogs and had to run inside. They typically stay out there, had to run inside for a minute, come back out, 
and the miniature chihuahuas yelping and down on the other end of the yard and they think they they never saw anything but they think that that maybe a hawk tried to grab it and i don't know if that's you know would a wild hawk go after a, a house dog like that or not typically i mean sometimes it happens with a trained hawk because when we train these hawks we've overdeveloped their confidence to take game okay so it's more likely that that scenario would happen with a trained falconry bird than it is it would happen with a wild bird. Okay. These birds, if you see these birds, when you're hunting rabbits in particular, you'll, you'll see the bird, a new or younger bird, it'll grab the rabbit and you'll see it looking at you as you're running up to it like you better get here quick because in, in the second you put your hands on that rabbit, they'll release their grip because they know you're going to help them. And that and that's it's like it's like wherever you go, they're like a kid that's got a big brother. You know, wherever he goes, the little kid's going to pick a fight with anybody he can find because his big brother's going to kick their butt for him. And that's okay. the same thing with these birds. They they look at something they go, I don't think I can handle it, but I got the, you know, I got the naked ape with me. He'll help me out. And that's <laughs> And they, you can see them. You can see the little brains working. You know, you're looking at me going, dang on it. It's going to be big brother syndrome. I got to go over there and choke this cat. Right. <laughs> so then, over, over the 50 year period, I can say incidents of that, of the dog nature have been maybe two. Okay. So it's definitely not a common occurrence. No. no. It's not something that you go, wow, I can't train my bird because I'm scared to death it's going to catch a dog. Yeah. But okay. The uh, In the wild, any dog that a, a wild hawk would see would be a coyote. And it's a, and that's a direct threat because when out, particularly when you're hunting in an area where there's a lot of coyotes, and your bird grabs a rabbit and say that rabbit starts screaming, you know, that's that's a predator call. That's going to drag bring the coyotes in. Right. That's, and I've had coyotes trying to beat me to the rabbit, you know. But them hawks see them coyotes, and they, they know instinctively that that coyote's wanting to make dinner out of them. And if they see a coyote within 50 yards of them, whether they're on a rabbit, they'll leave the rabbit going and head to the trees. So what I'm saying is they're very, very scared of dogs and coyotes and foxes. Okay. So, so if somebody... You know, we talked about how to get into falconry, and it's a it's a pretty lengthy process. And if somebody doesn't want to make the the lifestyle commitment that you guys mentioned, you know, is there are there are there opportunities for people to hunt with a hawk without going through all of that? And that's exactly why we started what we're doing, because we realize, and I said this over and over and over again, you can't expect people. And I told this to Division Wildlife. I don't expect people to have to go through what a falconer goes through just to see a bird of prey go hunting. And when we started this whole thing, I told them, I said, my, my desire is that I can let people see falconry and be a falconer for a day without having to put eight years into it. And, and that's what we're trying to accomplish right now. We're trying to get to a point where we can take people hunting and, and with our birds and, and you don't, and I've taken many, many people hunting with birds. The problem is you just, if you, if you go a day and you're out there for two hours and you don't see a rabbit, for me, 
that's okay. I expect that. But if you take somebody out and you tell them, I'm going to take you hunting, and you take them out for two or three hours, and you don't see anything for the birds to chase, they're looking at you like, why the heck are you bothering to do this? Yeah. You know, so what we're trying to do now is set up a hunt that will be successful and make it look and make it work like it really does in the wild. So what we're looking at at this point is how we're going to go pheasant hunting, and and we and we can go pheasant hunting at pheasant farms, you know, at the uh, shooting preserves. The only problem is if your bird flies over into the other part of the preserve, which they can do so easily, it's unbelievable. There's a good chance somebody's going to shoot it. So now now we're kind of stuck with. Do we have to start our own preserve so that we can take people hunting? In a okay. Company? So, and that's that's kind of where we're at right now is our our battle to figure out how to do that because we really do want to be able to give everybody the opportunity to see falconry as as we do it. And that's really just another <clears throat> avenue for us for education and conservation of the species. That that gives us a chance. You got to entertain people with what you're doing it has sure. to be entertaining or they're just not going to pay any attention to you so while we're entertaining you we get to bore the snot out of you and tell you to quit throw, putting poison out for mice because the balance of nature will take care of the mice if you just give it time <laughs> okay so you guys are working on getting a program going where people can come out with you and and hunt with the birds now i'm, ass- I'm assuming they're not holding the birds they're they're just there sort of participating in flushing game and that sort of thing? Is that is that how that would work? Uh, kind of. We, you know, we have a certain set of laws and guidelines in which we have to adhere to that is sent down from the federal and state office. So they can hang on and hold to a bird for a brief moment, but once the hunt starts, our birds are going to be in the tree anyway because that's where they get the, the, the most optimized... Uh, Opportunity. Yeah. Chances, the best chances to, to, to snag whatever it is that we are going to flush. Sure. So during the hunt, no one's holding the bird. They will just be just like us, beating the brush with a stick, uh, being, you know, we, we, we may or may not have dogs with us, but for all intents and purposes, we are going to be the dogs for the hawks. They will have several opportunities to call the bird to their glove, which is what most people are looking for. Most people are not looking to be directly involved at releasing the hawk at quarry. Okay. So is... I guess where do people go for more information? Is that something that you are you're you currently have access to, or you're it's still in the works? How can people find out more information about that? So we, you know, we definitely have information on it. It's going to be at our website at www.miamivalleyfalconry.com. We also have a Facebook and an Instagram, Miami Valley Falconry. Um, you know, they're updated pretty often. So uh, right now we're still waiting on to determine the exact dates in which the tickets or which the hunts will happen. So tickets aren't up yet. The hunts will start in the fall. We will probably start in November and then we will end in March Um, because the falconry season is actually from September till March. So that's probably when we'll start is in November. Okay. And just for listeners' sake, we'll have links to their website, Facebook, and Instagram page in the show notes, so they'll be easy to find. So, um, I guess, Doug, you mentioned the poison. What are sort of the the sort of um, what am I trying to say here? The 
current issues, any any problems, anything you know, like with deer, the, you know, the talk is CWD. Are there are there other like health or environmental issues that are a concern for wild falcons and or the sport of falconry itself? Well, the, the way it is, the sport of falconry revolves around all the birds of prey. So, you know, you kind of are, are one of our goals is to, you know, give information on protection of those birds. So what's happening right now is every farmer in the world gets something called fly bait. Have you ever heard of fly bait? No. Oh, it's, it's a relatively common poison. And they use it, they spread it on horse manure, anything that flies are attracted to, and it kills flies. The unique thing about this stuff, you can spread it on a carcass and throw it out. And Say you, you found a deer carcass on the side of the road, you drug it home. You spread some fly bait on it. You're mad at the coyotes because one of the coyotes killed your neighbor's Jack Russell. So you're going to take this deer carcass out, throw it in the field, and spread fly bait all over it. This stuff is so potent. These coyotes eat it, and they walk just about 100 yards before they fall over dead. So this, so okay, now, now you've got this carcass there, you killed all the coyotes, and you, you, know, you accomplished your goal. With, and so you're still accomplishing more because red tails eat uh, carrion, as do bald eagles. So now you're killing them too. So that's my big beef is that fly bait. Every farmer in the county is using it. Ask around about it. You'll be you'll you'll be surprised to find out what how, how common it is. Yeah, and then, then there's the uh, the mouse poisons too with the the decon. Um, you know, one of the big things we talk about too is because uh, at our falconry school we also do just conservation talks of all the birds of prey, like our owls. We've got barn owls and Eurasian eagle owls, and we're gonna get more owls than that. And one of the big things we talk about is um, the number one killer of your barn owls is actually poisoned mice. So we always tell people leave them on the shelves because, like Doug said earlier, nature takes care of itself. Um, if you let the mice population be, it's going to grow to such a population size that the mice are going to take notice, or excuse me, the, the owls are going to take notice, and all the other birds of prey in the daytime are going to take notice, and they'll take care of, the, the, of your mouse problem. But people like to uh, put out the poisons as a quick fix, and you know, Mouse eats the poison, it gets a little bit away, you know, barn owl, hawk, it sees that, and it's like, oh, free dinner. Now, once they start eating it, you know, it's game over. It's just a matter of a few hours, and that hawk or owl, it's dead. And it, it is a painful death. And if you've ever seen a bird of prey die of poison, it's hard to watch. Because that, that animal is truly just struggling, and it, it's so... so then, and it continues on after that, even. Then, then the raptor dies. And something comes along to eat the raptor, whether it's a coon or a fox or whatever happens by, then that critter dies as well. So I just think it's important to realize that when we're talking about raptors, they don't just occupy a certain period of the day. So we have hawks and falcons that, that are out being predators all day long. And then when the night shift starts and those guys go to bed, out come the owls. So raptors are really providing 24-7 rodent population control that's very effective if, if the people would just stay out of the way and let them do that, it, it works out. You know, a barn owl will take up to six mice a day. When they're breeding, they'll take upwards of 20 a day. So they're, they're very effective at population control. Some other things people can do is when it's dark out, let the skies be dark. You know, we tend to want to light everything up, and that's that's bad for owl habitat as well. Okay, is uh, 
is lead or lead ammunition an issue? Because I know there's talk in, in California of banning the lead uh, ammunition, the condors and things like that. Is that is that a concern with uh, like the red tail, the, the, the falcons, I guess, that we have in this area? There are lead poisoning deaths, but I think a lot of those, um, it's probably more tied to the fish-eating birds, the bald eagles and things of that nature. Not only do we have ammunition that's made of lead, um, but we also have fishing gear that's made of lead that gets stuck in the fish, and then the raptors that eat fish eat those fish, they get poisoned. Um, and there's been multiple studies done that show that the ammunition made of the other material that's not the lead is just exactly as effective. So I would hope in the future at some date that we could get away from using that old-time technology and move on to something that's less detrimental to all wildlife. Okay. So are there other sort of conservation things that, that people can do to help the the birds of prey? I, you know, I'm thinking like they've done for some of the, the duck species and things like the nesting boxes and things like that. Are there, are there things like that or just mainly the getting rid of the poisons? No, no the nesting box things, it was exactly where I was going it, uh, to answer your question. Is there something people can do? Yes, they can build nesting boxes. And there's descriptions on in the internet on how big to make these, particularly the owl nesting boxes. What's happening in suburbia there's a little bird called a screech owl. These little things are oh, not quite as big as a pigeon, but they're mouse catching machines and they're very common in suburban areas. They're considered to be one of the most common owls in the state of Ohio. You don't see them because they're out at night. You can hear the little warble call, but most people don't recognize it. But the fact is, if you build a box, you can get the little dudes nested right in your backyard. So, you know, that, that's something a person could do. You could put together a nesting box for, for a screech owl. It could put together a nesting box for a barred owl or a horned owl. Those, both of those birds nest in um, suburban areas. You know, you can get them to show up in those areas by putting those nest boxes in. And if you got a nest box, say of a barred owl in your, in your backyard, and, it, and a barred owl gets there, you're not, you're not going to see any mice ever they're going to wipe them out. So speaking of nesting, do our, our red-tailed hawks, do they use the same nesting site year after year if it's undisturbed, or, or do they pick a new site, or how does, how does a nesting work? They'll use the same site um, unless a great horn now comes and steals it, and then they'll have to build another one. That's very common. Okay. Horned owls nest in old red-tailed nest sites. And those nests, you can tell a red-tailed nest site, they're about as big as a, a number nine wash tub. <laughs> you know, they're good-sized nests. It's, it's not, you know, something you're going to go, wow, what is that? You know dang well what it is. <laughs> they're big. Yeah, yeah. And that, is that, because like I said, there's a, there's a bald eagle nest down the street from my house, and it seems sure. like that's a, uh, they're always using that nest, and I'm assuming it's the same bird? Is that, are they, is it? Once they've established a nest, as long as nothing, um, a tree doesn't fall down or something doesn't, you know, take the nest, are, are they continuing to use the same nest year after year? Yes. Most of, most of these raptors are monogamous as well. Okay. They'll, they'll use that nest. Some of those eagle nests will get so big, they'll knock the tree down. They'll, oh, wow. Yeah, they'll, they'll, after 20 years, they'll get so big. 
that the nest is more than the tree can take. Wow. Okay. So is there anything, uh, anything else you guys want to touch on while we've, while we've got you on the line here? You know, that's, it, it's kind of unique that you were talking about bald eagles. I, I don't know if people realize this. I was involved in banding bald eagles in the early 70s. And at that time, we had to go to the upper peninsula of Michigan before we could find a bald eagle's nest. And there was two nests in the upper peninsula of Michigan in 1972. And that was it. There hadn't been a nest of eagles in the state of Ohio since 1950 at that time. Now there's eagle nests. I know where four or five of them are myself. So the reason I bring this up is conservation works. I mean, once we got rid of DDT and the eagle population just boomed. And in fact, the wife and I saw an immature female bald eagle in our backyard goofing around our, we got a little one acre pond. And I, this, this thing was just out of the nest. You could tell the way it flew, it landed in a tree and it kind of crashed into the tree. And that's indicative of a young bird that's not coordinated enough. I'd say this bird got out of the nest just a matter of days ago. But that was a major thrill, particularly for me, having the history that I have, knowing what I know about them and getting to see that eagle in my own backyard. I was dancing in the street. So the whole point of this conversation is that conservation works. We got to see them eagles and people get to see them every day. And I'm just tickled to death over it. Yeah, that, people would be able to see them for a long time to come. And that's why we're doing what we're doing, trying to get out here and particularly educate kids. So if somebody wanted to come see one of your your shows, I, I, I know you mentioned the Renaissance Fairs. Do you do like public shows for people to come see or is it are they mostly sort of private events for for uh, different organizations or how does how do your shows work if people wanted to come see one of your shows so to answer that it's kind of all of the above we do a lot of private shows for elementaries uh, companies universities things like that but we're also we're starting to do more and more public shows um, to, particularly festivals like the renaissance festival the celtic fest um, in the future we're actually working on to where people can come out um, a couple times a year and catch a public show um, you know, it's, it's something that's in the works still. And uh, it, like I said, it's in the works, and there will be ways that the public can more readily come out and see what we're doing um, and get, a, get, get that message of conservation that we're trying to pass on. Um, so as of right now, um, you can look for us at the next uh, Renaissance Festival. Uh, that's coming up in September and October in Harvardsburg, Ohio. Um, and then if you wanted to schedule us for, you know, a corporate event, a family gathering, uh, your school, a team building exercise, retirement home, whatever it may be, you can find us on online, give us a call, shoot us an email, we can come out to you. And I guess just for listeners sake, how far do you guys travel for those kind of shows? Well, so we typically do not like to, cause you know, we got to keep put we got to put all these birds in, in, a, in, in the car and we're trying, right. um, if it's outside of an hour, which we will do, there's going to be a charge of, for travel because, you know, it's not just one vehicle we're bringing. We're actually bringing three vehicles. We bring our own sound system. Um, you know, we're ready in play. We're ready to go as soon as we get there. Um, we set up. doesn't take us very long. And, you know, uh, we got somewhere like eight birds. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you just heard Doug, but we got like about eight birds that we bring to each of our shows. Um, so... It, it 
typically within an hour is the best, but if we need to go more than an hour, because we have done that, we're based in Morrow and Blanchester, Ohio. Uh, we're actually going up to uh, Coshocton uh, at the Clarity Gardens. Clarity Gardens, uh, what is that? Tuesday. 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 This Tuesday. Um, and then, let's see. The next Tuesday on the 9th, we're going to be at Caesars Creek Learning Center off of Clarksville Road for the Little Rangers. And then on the 16th, that is going to be, that one is a private event. That's going to be for Indiana Wesleyan University. And that's actually a little bit more than an hour also. That's actually about, that's almost close to two hours away. Um, but, you know, like I said, we do have travel fees for three cars. And, you know, sometimes we, we typically bring out three educators. But depending on the show, depending on what you want, we can bring out more. Um, so this one's, I think, three educators, three three cars, eight birds, something like that. So and it's about a two-hour drive. So. And and we're also going to offer during the winter time. I want to be able to offer people a chance to take pictures of our birds flying. And and you want and you got to do that in the winter time because that's when we've really got all our birds training and everything's flying. And we and one of the things we do is we've got three falcons that we we fly we call it flying to the lure. That's a situation where the falconer stands there, and the bird. These falcons love to fly. You got to understand the fact that they they'd rather fly than eat. So when you swing a lure, which is a leather pod on about a ten foot string, you swing it, and the falcon comes by, and takes a grab at it. Okay, so. You call it flying the lure, and you'll try to get this falcon, and each time it tries to grab it, we call that a pass. So we, we try to get 10 or 20 passes out of a falcon. So that, that lends an opportunity for a photographer to set up and get a picture of this falcon coming in at a, at a you know 120 to 200 miles an hour. It gives them an opportunity to see that and capture that picture. So we're going to offer that three times. We're thinking this winter we should be able to accomplish getting three times where we can get groups of people out there to get pictures of we'll, we'll have the goshawk catch a lure in front of them we'll have harris hawks fly down and they can you know get pictures of them flying to the lure flying to the glove and then we'll have the falcon doing passes at the lure we'll have up to three falcons going yeah. so i've got to fly those birds every day we'll provide coffee hot chocolate <clears throat> things yeah, like that's that <laughs> we, we did an outside show and we invite we invited people and we 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 gave them coffee and donuts and and showed them all the birds, and we had a big talk, and they spent a couple, three hours there, I guess. Everybody seemed to have a wonderful time. That's awesome. That sounds, that actually sounds like a lot of fun. Sounds like a cool uh, experience. Well, hey, we'll invite you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you're up in Akron, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, just outside of Akron, yep. That's where right. we're located, yep. You, you can totally come, that's, that's what, a three-hour drive? Probably, yeah, thereabouts. Right, well, it's worth it. You can come on down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Down and go hunting with us. Yeah, we'll take yeah. it. You guys enjoy that stuff. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Jacob and I were actually just talking about that. Like, that would be a cool experience. So, so any sort of uh, closing thoughts you want to leave us and the audience with? Any any kind of last uh, last words sounds <laughs> sounds a little morbid, but any any closing thoughts, I guess, you want to leave everybody with? My closing thoughts would be if you enjoy the outdoors and you have access to a kid that maybe doesn't get to enjoy the outdoors, whether it's a niece, your own son or daughter, grandchild, go pick that kid up. It's it's worth a day of your time 
to pass on the knowledge you have. I think people tend to think they don't have a lot of knowledge to pass on. And you may surprise yourself and find out that you actually have quite a wealth of knowledge to pass on to a younger kid. Get them out there. Take them fishing. Take them on a hike. Point out kill deers and how they act when they have babies. All the stuff you learned. Flip over logs. Look for salamanders. Catch snakes in the creek. Give them a crawl dad. Just hand it to them. See if it pinches them or not. <laughs> yeah. You might surprise yourself. You might have a good time as well. Like that. My... Uh... After church today, my my daughter and I actually went on a little hike, and there was they must have just hatched. There was all these little tiny, I'm talking no bigger than a pencil eraser, little frogs on the trail that we we were <laughs> checking out. I knew that so, was, and we have them as well. Yeah, those things are neat. I love them little dudes. Yeah. So there, there's a there's the funny thing along those same lines of every critter out there has some predator that wants to eat it, and the thing that eats all those toads is called a red shoulder. And, and they're very common. They're, they're the ones you hear them screaming all the time. They're noisy as heck. And, and they're frog eaters. They eat frogs, crawdads, and snakes. If you see a hawk with a snake, there's a 90% chance it's a red shoulder. Beautiful bird. Okay. Beautiful bird, just completely useless for falconry. <laughs> but beautiful bird. Okay. All right. Well, any, any, uh, any other closing thoughts, or do we want to end it with that? Uh, but, you know, like Doug said, conservation works. Like Becky said, you know, get out and enjoy the nature. Take someone you might know, might surprise yourself. And I think that's that's pretty well it. Thank you for having us out. Awesome. Yeah, and I want to thank you guys for taking time to talk to us. Like I said, I will put links to your website, Facebook, and Instagram page in the show notes so people can find that. And uh, we might have to take you up on going out on a hunt this fall with, with the birds. So I think that would be a lot of fun. Don't be shy. Yeah. All right, guys. Take care. Thanks for everything. And there you have it. I told you it was good, right? Jacob and I, I know we learned a ton in this conversation, and we just really enjoyed talking to them. So hopefully you guys got something out of this. Hopefully you enjoyed the conversation. If you would, go check out Miami Valley Falconry. Either check, you know, jump over to their website or check them out on Facebook and Instagram. Give them a like, give them a follow if you're interested in, in what they're posting. And uh, as always... Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Ohio Huntsman Podcast on Instagram, and we're just Ohio Huntsman on Facebook. And uh, check out some of our shirts. If you haven't got one already, they're super cool shirts. I'm trying, they probably won't be live when this goes live, but I'm trying to get some new designs out there, and uh, I'll definitely let you guys know when the new shirts are available. And there will be a link to that in our show notes as well. So... I think that's everything, and as always, thanks for listening.